Well, last week we did an introduction to Matthew 13, kind of got the lay of the land, so to speak, before we started jumping into specific parables, which we now do. But as we do that, uh, you need to think about the disciples, the disciples around Jesus and what they've been going through in Matthew. You see, by the end of Matthew 12, we've said this, that uh, it's over, that Jesus has proclaimed the gospel, the message of the kingdom to his generation, and yet by and large, whether you're talking the scribes and the Pharisees or whether you're talking the crowds, they have not repented, which has been Jesus' main call this whole time. And so by the end of chapter 12, there's a turning point, and we see that turning point heading into Matthew 13. But think about the disciples were thinking about this. They responded to the message of the kingdom. They had repented. They had placed their faith in Jesus, and they had been following him. But why not the nation? Why not their friends and family? They heard the same message. Why have they not responded? And really, if you fast-forwarded to Matthew's audience who received the original gospel of Matthew, they would have asked the same question. Why are we Christians? Why are we believers in the Messiah? But our family and our friends are not. They've heard the same message, and yet they've rejected it. And this would have even been more so because if you think about the kingdom, and the kingdom is set in the Old Testament, this idea that um, God's kingdom through his Messiah is going to come down, it's gonna, um, he's going to reign over all Israel and the world, and even the picture of the new covenant is that every single person in Israel is going to repent and know lo- the Lord. Well, if Jesus came bringing that promise of the kingdom, that promise of the new covenant, wait a minute, why this rejection? That is unexpected. That is unexpected. And really, if we think about it, the question is the same for us. Why do so few respond in a saving way to the gospel of the kingdom? The gospel, that the, the news that you are a sinner, you deserve God's judgment because sin is not just a naughty thing. You are a, a personally offending the holy, infinitely holy, infinitely worthy God of the universe. You deserve an eternity in hell. And yet Jesus Christ came in the flesh to save Sinners to die in their place so that all who would entrust themselves to Jesus Christ, their sins would be canceled out and Christ's righteousness would be credited to them if they would have faith and follow Jesus and walk the life of a disciple. We proclaim that message. That is our job as the church and as individual disciples. But why do so few respond in a saving way? Or even, you might ask it another way, why do people who even respond or seemingly respond to the gospel, they don't finish? They walk away. They fall away. Why is that? Well, that's the same question the disciples and Matthew's audience would have had, and the parable of the sower answers that. It answers it for us. So the main idea for this text this morning, it's there for the original audience and it's here for us, is this. Hear and understand why so few hear and understand the message of the kingdom. That is what the main idea of this text is. Hear and understand why so few hear and understand the message of the kingdom. And so there's three parts, should have been pretty clear in the text where those are coming out of. First, there's the parable of the sower, and you need to hear the parable of the sower in verses 1 through 9. Second, you need to understand the reason for the parables in verses 10 through 17. And third, 
you need to not only hear the parable of the sower, but you need to understand the parable of the sower in verses 18 through 23. So with that said, let's go ahead and jump into our text. Verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 1. Hear the parable of the sower. That same day... What same day? Well, the same day as the events that just happened in chapter 12, meaning uh, the, uh, the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus had healed a demon-possessed man, and they said, well, he did that by the power of Beelzebul. Uh, the same time when Jesus uh, condemns his generation, the same time when his family sought to see him, and Jesus said, who are my mother and my brothers? Who's my closest family? It's my disciples. That same day. And so we are made to... Made, uh, we are made to Look at chapter 13 in that light. It set the stage, that little phrase. That same exact day, Jesus went out of the house. Uh, that's where he just was, where his family was trying to see him. He had all these crowds around him. They couldn't get to him. Uh, that, but he goes out of the house now, after what he just said about who his true family is, and he sat beside the sea, the Sea of Galilee. Probably he's in Capernaum, kind of adopted hometown. And notice what happens, verse 2, and great crowds gathered around him. So the crowds continue to follow him. Remember the crowds. We've got the disciples, those who have repented and are following Jesus. We've got the full-on opposers. We've got the scribes and the Pharisees who are standing against Jesus. And then the crowds have been interested, uh, but they're kind of in the middle. They're kind of neutral territory, although Jesus has made it very plain that really the scribes and the Pharisees and the crowds are all in the same boat in the sense that they have not repented and are condemned. But the crowds are still hanging around. The whole crowd stood on the beach. There's our setting. And he told them many things in parables. And we talked about parables last week. Parables at this time were a recognized teaching form. What is a parable? Let's remember, a parable is a form of wisdom discourse forming a comparison with common-to-life scenarios and reality in order to teach profound truths. It takes wisdom to understand a parable. Teachers in Jesus' day would use them to draw a comparison. That's the key word, a comparison between everyday life kind of stuff and profound realities, and they would use them as a way of teaching. They would use them as a way of teaching. The disciples recognize that he's teaching in parables in verse 10, so this is a known form, but he starts speaking to the crowds in parables, and he says many things. Jesus is not, in this chapter, as he goes through these parables, he's not just saying one thing, he's saying many different things. He's saying many different things. He's speaking them in these comparisons, though. So we see the first one. He told them many things in parables, saying, a sower went out to sow. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with that language, what's he talking about? Uh, everyone in Galilee, and they would have gotten this just automatically, they, that, just by Jesus saying that, they would have gotten the scene, but uh, people in Galilee had these plots of land, these plots of ground. Uh, they would be somewhere on the terrain, um, a variety of terrain in Galilee. But they, each person, or not, not necessarily each person, but people would have plots of ground, and then they would, they would, sow seeds. When we talk about sowing seed, we're talking about the idea of a sower taking from a bucket or a bag or um, a bowl, and he's taking it out and he's shaking the seed on either plowed ground, or sometimes they did it before they plowed. They did it both ways. 
and he's planting his seeds. It's kind of this idea of broadcasting. So you take a little bit of seed out, you sprinkle it on your ground uh, in order to grow something. He's probably talking about wheat or barley, probably wheat, since the next parable deals with wheat, but it doesn't really matter what it is. He's sowing wheat or barley. He's doing this on a ground, this ground. And for the the sower, the farmer, to be successful, he would have to know his plot of ground, and he'd have to be careful with how he threw the seed so he's not wasting seed so that he can get a harvest out of it. This would have been a familiar picture to the crowds. A sower went out to sow. Verse 4, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. Now, what's the path? Uh, uh, they didn't have fences, uh, they had paths. And so sometimes these paths, these hardened paths, would either be, form a boundary between plots of land, or maybe they would run through a plot of land. But you know what a path is. You go on a hiking trail anywhere in the area, people have trodden on it so much, it's hardened ground. So as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. We aren't told how much seed fell along the path, and yet some did. And the birds came and devoured them. You've got seed on hardened ground. It's really easy for the birds to see and come down and swoop down and eat it to devour that seed. And already you're like, ooh, that's, that's, that's not good. That's, that's negative. Um, what's going on with this guy, this farmer? We're, we even have some starting suspicions about this farmer because, like, can't you throw the seed a little bit better so that not so much lands on the path? Like, can't you just put your back to the path and cast this way? I mean, that's, that's not good. You've lost some of your seed, your precious seed. Verse 5, we see another case. Other seeds fell on rocky ground. Now, this isn't like rocky ground like you have a bunch of stones in it. This is like the kind of ground where you have a shelf of rock, like a big mass of rock with maybe two or three inches of topsoil right above it. That's what it means to have rocky ground. It's not enough dirt. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up. You've got less soil. It's easier for the sun to warm that dirt and for those seeds to germinate more quickly. Immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. So they sprang up. But then we kind of get this picture. There's a similar word in the original uh, where the sun rose. It came up. So the seed sprang up, but then the sun came up. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. You can kind of see a progression happening, right? We, we had the first seed. It just fell on the path. It didn't even germinate. But now we've got some seed that fell into some uh, some thin soil, and it germinated really quickly. It started springing up really quickly, but actually to its detriment because then the sun scorched it. It died. It bore no fruit, no crop. It withered away. And our, again, we think about this as like, oh man, this is, this is negative so far. What's this guy doing? We're headed for disaster here, right? Again, we're not told proportionately how much seed uh, fell on the rocky soil, but doesn't this guy know his land? Doesn't he know how to maybe amend his soil? Doesn't he know how to not waste seed in this way? Doesn't he know it's going to spring up and die away like that? He's a good farmer, shouldn't he? And then we get the next case. Other seeds fell among thorns or thorn plants, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Again, 
Maybe we get a little bit more this time. Maybe the seed germinates, it grows a little bit, but the problem here is, is what the seed shares in the soil, and it shares thorn plants. And it's like, again, wait, this is everything so far, it's slanted negative, right? Like, uh, this is not good. Uh, what's the farmer doing? Like, didn't he know that he's got some soil with some thorns in it? Couldn't he amend the soil? Couldn't he do something about it? Instead, some seed falls there and it gets wasted because even though the plant grows up to an extent, it withers. And as he'll say later, it bore no fruit. It died. It got choked. And then finally, we get some hope here. Verse 8. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, produced fruit. Again, he's probably barley or wheat. Produced a crop. Some, a hundredfold, so now he's focusing on an on individual seed. So we have this good soil where the seeds are falling, and you focus in on an individual seed. Well, some of that, one individual seed gives a hundred grains. So it started out as one grain, and now it produces a plant that has a hundred grains. Another, 60, and some, 30. That's the parable. And then Jesus adds, speaking to the crowds, he who has ears, let him hear. And what does that mean? We've seen him use that phrase before. He used it in chapter 11. Basically, the, frame, the, the, the phrase means this, listen very carefully to what I just said. Listen very carefully to what I just said. And that's how he leaves it. That's how he leaves it. That's the parable of the sower. Uh, but then... That leads us into our next portion. That's the parable of the sower. And what we mainly want to get from that section is this, the picture, right? You want the picture in your mind. Jesus gave us the everyday reality in, in these verses, but he did not, speaking to the crowds, give the other half of the comparison. The disciples, and they'll say this in a second, recognize that he's speaking in a parable, but usually when you teach in a parable, you not only give the everyday occurrence, you also, if you're teaching by it, you give the reality it's pointing to, but Jesus does not do that. Instead, all he says, he gives the reality portion of things, but then all he says to the crowds is, he who has ears, let him hear. Listen very carefully, crowds, to what I just told you. And then he stops. And that sets the stage for the disciples, which brings us to our second point, Understand the reason for the parables. Understand the reason for the parables. Verse 10. Then the disciples came. So remember, we said last week that when we talk about the parables, we got two audiences. Some to the crowds, some to the, the disciples. The disciples were in the crowds. They heard the parable of the sower. But the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Why do you speak to them in parables? What are they asking? Well, there's a couple things we could note. One, they're asking a reason. Now, this is probably, they're probably not still in the boat. It's probably not like they huddled together for a minute. Maybe they did, but it's more the idea that this is later sometime, and the disciples approach Jesus, and they want a reason. One, they recognize the genre of parable. They've heard this kind of thing before, but they always hear it with, the other side put in, perhaps. But why are you doing this? Why have you switched? 
Because everything up to this point in Matthew, even to the crowds, Jesus has been very clear about his message. His message has been, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. The kingdom promised in the Old Testament, the kingdom of the Messiah. Here, I'm giving you kingdom foretaste through my miracles and all of this. You need to repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Everything's been very clear up to this point. Jesus has used comparisons and illustrations, but now he's just using illustra- uh, comparisons the whole time. So it's a shift, it's a change, and the disciples want to know why. Why are you doing this? Why the change? Why the change? And he answered them, because. Now, some translations leave that off, but there's a little conjunction there that because they ask for a reason, they get a because answer. So because, here's why I'm teaching in parables. First reason, let me give it to you. Because to you, it has been given to know the mysteries or the secrets. We talked about that word last week. We'll talk, remind you of it in a second. But, but to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of the heavens. But to those, meaning the crowds, it has not been given. So let's digest what Jesus just said. The reason... I am teaching in parables is because you guys have been given by God's grace the ability or the authorization to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. To you disciples, it's been given to you, but not to the crowds. In other words, there's two groups, and I am speaking in parables because there are these two groups. And because one group is authorized to know, you guys, the disciples, and the other group is not authorized to know. And parables are a suitable genre for this because what is a parable? It's a comparison. You got everyday life kind of stuff and you've got an explanation. So that's perfect because what does it take to discern a parable or to understand a parable? It takes wisdom. You need to understand the correspondence. You need to understand both sides. So if you got two groups and one side is authorized and one side is not, then the parables are perfect because all you need to do is tell one half of the comparison for the people that are not authorized and to the people that are authorized. It's perfect. You give the other half of the comparison. So that's why Jesus is doing it because there's now two groups. There's a separation. That separation was very clear at the end of Matthew 12, and Jesus is alluding to that fact. What is the content? We said this last week, but just remind it. We see it here. What's the content of the parables? The mysteries or the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. And we said that the biblical word mystery or secret, which is rooted really in Daniel, in Daniel 2. We went to Daniel 2 last week. A a secret in the biblical sense or a, a, a mystery is the revelation of God's partially hidden wisdom particularly as it concerns events occurring in the last days. And that's exactly what the kingdom of heaven is all about. That's what happens at the end of time, the kingdom coming down from heaven to encompass the whole earth. That's what Daniel talks about. And he talks about mysteries and he has these dreams that he interprets. But the way a mystery works is that you get a, to some people, you get a partial revelation, but then you need an interpreter, which is exactly how the parables are working. Crowds get revelation, they do. They get the con- half of the comparison, but until there's an interpreter, 
a wise interpreter who can tell you what the correspondence is, then it's hidden revelation, partially hidden revelation. And notice it's plural secrets. It's not just this parable that Jesus has been talking about. Oh, that's among them. The parable of the sower is one of the secrets of the kingdom, but then the rest of the parables in this chapter. And why is Jesus doing that? Because he wants to give clear revelation to his disciples and not clear revelation to the crowds. And Jesus supports that in verse 12. For whoever is having, it will be given to him, and he will be caused to abound. But whoever is not having, even what he is having, will be taken away from him. It's kind of a proverbial statement. In fact, he'll use it in other ways. But at least here, what is he talking about? He's saying, the crowds have had clear revelation up to this point but they don't have repentance. And so even what they have had in terms of a clear revelation, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near, in terms of miracles, in terms of all of that, it's being taken away in an act of judgment. God gives clear revelation of his word. He has given clear revelation of his word, and yet people have not responded. So what does God do? God acts in judgment by removing clarity. He's still revealing truth, but it's unclear now. That's what Jesus is using the parables for, because it's an act of judgment by God. We now have the disciples, and we have the crowds. And then Jesus continues to build his reason for speaking in the parables. Verse 13, on account of this, in parables, I am speaking to them. So that was their question, right? Uh, Why are you speaking to them in parables? Uh, Jesus has given some of that reason, and now he develops it even more. On account of this, in parables, I'm speaking to them because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, neither are they understanding. Now, notice those words, seeing, hearing, understanding. From here on out in this section that we're in through verse 23, those are very, very important words to keep track of. And Jesus is going to explain it here in a second, verse 14 and, ter- 14 and 15, in terms of the prophecy of Isaiah, so you can get geared up for going back to Isaiah in the Old Testament here in a second. But what is Jesus saying? He's looking, I would argue he's looking both ways at this point in his ministry. He's looking back in the sense, and he's characterizing the people. We have given them clear revelation. They have been seeing, but they're not getting it. They're not actually seeing. They're seeing the data, but they're not processing it rightly. They're hearing, but they're not hearing. They're not hearing in the way they ought. They're not understanding. The idea of biblical understanding is not just that you process something mentally. It's that if you really understand something, you act on it. You act on it. So it's not just mental comprehension. It is you're going to act on it. Your life is going to change if you really understand. That's the biblical idea of understanding something. So the crowd so far, they've had this clear revelation. They're seeing, they're hearing, they're not getting it. They're not responding. But Jesus is also looking forward to the purpose and the use of the parables. This is the reason he's giving for it. The parables are going to do that and confirm that even more. They've already been seeing and not seeing They've already been hearing and not hearing and not understanding. The parables are going to make that condition worse. 
They're going to confirm what has already been happening as an act of judgment. And then Jesus continues to build this by talking about Isaiah. And the prophecy of Isaiah is being filled up with reference to them. Now, your Bible might translate that as fulfill, and haven't we seen in Matthew a lot of these fulfillment statements, such and such happen in order that such and that such, and such scripture might be fulfilled? We've seen that, right? That's a common refrain. That's part of what's been used to prove who Jesus is in his identity as Messiah. This word is different from those other words. Um, it's a little bit different. It's a more complex form, has the same root, but it's a little bit different. And this word means, if the other word just means fulfill, this word means either fill up or fill again. Fill up or fill again. So you can kind of think of like a container and it gets filled up uh, or fill again. You've, you've got some sort of pattern that gets renewed. That's different than, it's a different word than was used before because what Jesus is about to say, he's talking about the prophecy of Isaiah and what he talks about happened in Isaiah's day. And what Jesus is saying is the same pattern that happened in Isaiah's day, it's being filled up again with this generation. So it's not prophecy per se, it's more like there was a pattern in Isaiah's generation and it's happening again with this generation. That's what he is saying. And then he draws them in to the prophecy of Isaiah, which says, and he's quoting the Greek version, the Greek translation of Isaiah 6, 9, and 10 here. With hearing, you will hear, and you will never understand. You see that same language, hearing, is paired with understanding. If you really hear, then you ought to understand. But Isaiah is saying, or the scripture in Isaiah, the book of Isaiah is saying, with hearing you will hear, you're getting the data, but you're not actually understanding. In fact, you'll never understand. And seeing you will see, and you will never perceive. See, if you really see, not just take in the data, but you really un understand or perceive, that's what is being spoken to Israel in Isaiah's day. And we're going to go back there, and we're going to talk about what this is going on, but let's quote the rest of it. For the heart of this people is made fat. It's the idea of it being calloused. It's hardened. And with ears they, they heard heavily, and, with, and their eyes they shut, lest, key word, conjunction there, lest they see or perceive with their eyes, and with their ears they might hear, and their heart they might understand, with their heart they might understand, and turn, that's the language of repentance, turn or turn around, and I will heal them. Jesus is saying that was going on in Isaiah's day, and it's going on in my day. So let's go back to Isaiah 6 briefly to understand what was going on then so that we can understand what Jesus is saying now. So go to Isaiah 6. And let me summarize the context for you. In Isaiah 1 through 5, Isaiah has already been indicting he's been, um, Israel for its sin. And their sin, if you look in chapter 1, is basically you guys are doing some good external forms, some good-looking worship, external worship to Yahweh, and yet you don't believe it from the heart because you're actually oppressing, you're actually oppressing your neighbor. So you've got some good external worship forms going on, but it's not from the heart. 
And because of that, because of the leadership, because of the people, you guys are going to go into exile. Um, Isaiah 1 through 5, that's the gist of what's going on. You guys are going to go to exile. There's glimmers of hope that God's going to restore things, but that's the overarching message in Isaiah 1 through 5. Israel, and in fact Judah, the southern kingdom, you guys have great external forms, but from the heart, you're not obedient. So you're going to go into exile. Then in Isaiah 6, we get the famous vision of Isaiah seeing the Lord on the throne. And we, he sees him in his holiness. And then Isaiah says, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man, a man of unclean lips. I can't speak the way I should, which is devastating for a prophet who's supposed to speak for the people. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Their sin is shown through their speech. For my eyes have seen the king, Yahweh of hosts. And then what happens? God atones for his sin. He cleanses him. And then verse 8, in response to that, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, uh, here I am send me. That's how salvation works. You're saved. Your, your iniquity is atoned for, and you're ready to go. You're ready to be on mission because of what God has done for you. And that happens with Isaiah. And then verse 9, which is what Jesus is quoting, and he said, so God says this, go and say to this people. So he's talking about Israel as a whole, as a group. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Basically, what God is telling Isaiah is, your ministry is going to be like this. You're going to say what you're going to say, but uh, it's actually going to keep hardening the people. They're already hardened. They're already seeing, but not seeing. They're already hearing, but not understanding. And what you're going to do, Isaiah, in your ministry is you're actually going to do your ministry, and it's just going to confirm them more and more. It's just going to harden them more and more and more. Why? so that they don't repent, so that they may not be healed. This is the language of judgment. And Isaiah is kind of taken aback by this, because look at how it ends, verses 11 to 13. Then I said, well, how long, O Lord? This is, this is devastating. This is a, an indictment. This is a judgment against Israel. And he says, how long is this going to happen? And he says, until cities lie waste, without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And Yahweh removes people far away. That's the language of exile right there. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. And the only glimmer of hope at the very end, the holy seed is its stump. Basically, God's saying, Isaiah, you're going to go. You're going to confirm this people in the hardness so they can't repent. So the whole nation is going to be under my judgment in exile. And they're going to get thrown out of the land. But there is going to be a remnant. There is going to be a holy seed. And that's the hope, the glimmer of hope. And that gets developed further into Isaiah. But what is Jesus doing? That's what's going on in Isaiah's day. And Jesus is saying, it's the same thing in Israel in my day. His people have been hearing things clearly, 
about the kingdom, about who I am as king. I've shown them, and they don't understand. So the clarity gets removed. To what point? To the point where Israel can't hear, can't repent, and will go into exile. Now, Jesus doesn't spell it out here, but historically, and even we'll see more of this in Matthew, that's AD 70, when Rome comes in, crushes the nation, destroys the temple, and Israel gets sent out of the land again. Because why? Because they rejected their Messiah. The same pattern that happened in Isaiah's day is happening in Jesus' day. Now, catch this, though. What Jesus is drawing a distinction between is groups. This is very important to recognize. Jesus is drawing a distinction between groups. So he's characterizing the crowds, the people of Israel, that group as you guys are going to be hardened and unrepentant and you're going to go into exile. Does that mean that individuals from that group can't repent anymore? No. Because he said, verse 13, 9, he who has ears, let him hear. Meaning what? Okay, you heard one half of the parable, but if you listen to it very carefully and understand what it's about, and Jesus is going to give the explanation, then you still have the opportunity to move from the crowds into the disciples. So what we have here in Jesus characterizing his generation and what's going on, he's characterizing groups. It doesn't shut the door for individual repentance. It shuts the door for the group repentance. And then notice all that language of hearing and understanding, Jesus picks up on it and continues to use it throughout the rest of this section and then even when he explains the parable. Verse 16 But blessed, this is the same word that's used in the Beatitudes, happy, flourishing are your eyes because they see you, disciples, the ones who have repented and are following me, have seen properly and will see properly. And your ears, because they hear, they have heard properly. They will hear properly because you're not in the group of the crowds of the unrepentant Israelites. You're in the group of the repentant, my disciples. And so you're going to hear. And you, should be, you are blessed by that. You are happy. It is good that this is happening. And he goes on to kind of reinforce that in verse 17. For truly I say to you, that many prophets and righteous people, they desire to perceive, you see the same language of, of hearing and seeing, to perceive what you are seeing, and they did not perceive it, and to hear what you are hearing, and they did not hear it. And what's he talking about? He's talking about guys like Isaiah, who saw glimmers of the future and what's going to be the unfolding of the kingdom. They saw that, and they wanted to see what they are seeing. What are the disciples seeing? They're seeing the king. They're seeing foretaste of the kingdom. No prophet or righteous person prior to them has seen that. And it's no fault of the prophets or the righteous people. It's just a matter of timing and God's grace. But the disciples, the 12 are there, not just the 12, but other disciples as well. They're seeing and hearing amazing things, and they're able to 
because they have repented, they've entrusted themselves to Jesus, and they are following Jesus. The reason for the parables is to create that division. We're going to harden the crowds more because as a whole, they're unrepentant and they're doomed. And we're going to give the other half of the comparison, the explanation, which is coming in the next few verses, for the disciples so that they learn, they grow, because they do have ears to hear and do have ears to understand. So the parables are an act of judgment against an unrepentant Israel. So we've heard the parable of the sower. We've understood the reason for the parables. Now let's understand, not just hear, but understand the parable of the sower in verses 18 through 23. Therefore, so drawing an inference from what I just told you, you, and it's emphatic, you, disciples, hear. That's the language of Isaiah. You hear, because you can hear, because you're my disciples, you hear the parable of the sower. Verse 19. So now we get into the explanation. We get the other half of, we get the reality that the comparison is supposed to teach us. Everyone hearing the word of the kingdom and not understanding. Remember that pairing in Isaiah. If you hear rightly, you should understand, not just mentally process it, but act. So Jesus starts off by describing someone who hears and does not understand. What are they hearing? The word of the kingdom. What is the word of the kingdom? It's what Jesus has been saying this whole time, right? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. That's been his word. That's been his message. That's been going out from John, then from Jesus, then through the 12, Matthew 10. That's the word they proclaim. It's the word they're proclaiming now. It's the word that is going to continue to be proclaimed in the future, because in Matthew 10, Jesus looks forward to the future as well. That is the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel that God is coming with his Messiah to reign over this whole world and that'll mean judgment for sinners, but for those who repent, there is salvation. That is the gospel message. And Jesus characterizes the first seed as those who hear and do not understand. Now, let's understand some of the correspondences. The seed is the word. The seed is the gospel. I think we get that. Who's the sower? Well, the sower would be, first and foremost, Jesus and then any who proclaim like Jesus, who are connected with Jesus, like John as a forerunner and his 12 as his disciples. What is the soil? Well, let's keep reading. The evil one comes and snatches what has been sown in his heart. This is, the, this is what was sown beside the path or along the path. So what's the soil? The soil is people's hearts, different heart conditions that people have. And the heart in biblical language, it's not, we think of our heart as emotional. Yes, it includes emotions, but it includes your thinking and your reasoning and your volition. So what you do, it includes all of those. It's the mission control center. The heart is the mind. We would kind of say it like that. It controls your, it's your emotions, it's your affections, it's your decisions, it's your thinking. It's all of that. So Jesus is describing different heart conditions as he walks through this. So uh, each soil represents a different heart condition, 
And then the seed, it's the same seed that gets put on all these different soils, and it represents a different hearer. And what you will notice is everyone hears the word, but how are they going to respond? This person was along the path, hears and doesn't understand. This, uh, we could kind of think of this person as, what, the kingdom? That's weird. All right, whatever. Kind of dismisses it out of hand. They don't understand at all. Like, they don't understand in any measure. It's just kind of an instant dismissal. And what's going on is the devil, the evil one, is at work in that. Right? The word comes, someone kind of hears it, it's like, that's weird, dismisses it out of hand. Well, what just happened? The evil one snatched the seed away from his heart. Didn't have time to germinate. Didn't sink in at all because it was a hard path and a hard heart. Okay, so that's the one along the path. But what was sown upon the rocky soil, this one is the one hearing the word. Again, this person hears the word. It's not a matter of who hears or who doesn't. Everyone hearing the word, the gospel of the kingdom, and immediately with joy is receiving it. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. It is right and good to respond with joy to the message of the kingdom because the message of the kingdom is that Jesus is going to reign over the whole world. There's going to be perfect righteousness, perfect peace, perfect prosperity. Uh, People are going to live the way they ought to live. That is good. You should have joy over the kingdom. Christians are joyful people because of that reality. That's not the problem. The problem is what comes next. But he is not having root or a root in himself. Meaning what? Basically, the seed, it got into the soil, it got into the heart, and it even germinated, but not very deep. It was a surface consideration of the message. But he is temporary. That's the language. But he is temporary. And when affliction or tribulation or persecution come on account of the word, immediately he is offended. He stumbles. What's the picture? Well, you can imagine even in Jesus' day, great, Jesus is bringing the kingdom. This is exciting. This is amazing. I'm so glad to be here. Yes. And then all of a sudden they start saying, well, wait a minute. Why are the Pharisees opposing Jesus? And man, you're going to get kicked out of the synagogue if you believe in this Jesus. Man, they might even separate me from my family. My family might disown me, remember Matthew 10, uh, for believing in this Jesus. This isn't how it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be easy. It's supposed to be comfortable to be a Christian. And so when the trouble comes, and Jesus promised that trouble's going to come, he said very clearly in Matthew 10, trouble's going to come on account of the gospel, on account of the word of the kingdom, Immediately, the the immediacy of the joy is matched with the immediacy of the falling away. This word, it's uh, scandalizo. Uh, You can hear the word scandal in it, but it's the idea of stumbling. But in this case, stumbling like you're out of there. I had a response to the kingdom, but this isn't what I signed up for. I'm out of here. I'm out of here. They didn't count the cost. They didn't count the cost of the kingdom. They saw the good aspects of the kingdom, but they didn't count the cost of what it would cost in terms of rejection. Next type we see in verse 22. But what was sown into the thorn plants, 
This is the one hearing the word. See, everyone hears the word. All these people um, hear the word. What's the problem here? And the care of the age and the deceitfulness of wealth chokes the word. And it becomes, key word in Matthew, unfruitful. Unfruitful. There's no crop. What's going on with this person? In a sense, it's kind of almost the opposite of the rocky soil. This one sees all of the problems with following Jesus. Well, that's going to cost me uh, this, this, and this. You know, man, I'd rather just focus on the here and now because the stuff here and now is just really good. It'll satisfy me. What are they missing? They're missing the joy of the kingdom and the final outlook of, yeah, Jesus is going to bring the kingdom. It's not yet. All they're kind of focused on is the here and now. They're too focused on the here and now. They're not seeing the, the future promise of the kingdom. And so what happens? The cares of life, the cares of the age, the deceitfulness of wealth, it just chokes it out. The plant dies. It's unfruitful. And that word unfruitful is really important um, in Matthew because as we've seen multiple times, a couple times in Matthew, a good tree bears good fruit, a bad tree bears bad fruit. Every tree that bears bad fruit, John said this, will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So None of the first three are genuine disciples. They all end up being unfruitful. Oh, they're unfruitful for different reasons, but they're unfruitful nonetheless. And even though there was some measure, I mean, there was some measure of understanding in these people, wasn't there, right? They heard, everyone heard, there was some measure of understanding, there was some germination of the ideas, but there was no fruit, and fruit becomes the dividing line because we see that with the final case. But what was sown upon the good soil? This is the one who's hearing the word and understanding. Meaning what? Yeah, they mentally comprehend it, but they act on it. They act on it. Who indeed is bearing fruit and is producing one, a hundred, another, sixty, and another, thirty. The good soil are the people that respond to the message and are fruitful. The dividing line is fruitfulness. And in terms of Matthew, what does it mean to be fruitful? Well, we could look at Matthew 5 through 7, right? Kingdom righteousness. If you are a disciple, here's what it looks to live in Matthew 5 through 7, a kingdom righteousness, and that's characterized as fruit. But even that fruitfulness, remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talked about being a city on a hill, lights and salt, because what was the mission given to the disciples? Follow me and I will make you fishers of people. In other words, you're repenting and believing the message of the kingdom, but then immediately you are put on mission to also be a proclaimer of the kingdom, to be a proclaimer of the same message that was given to you. That's why I think he talks in terms of one grain, one case produced 100. Another grain in another place produced 60. Another grain in another place produced 30. Now those are, um, some people say, well, those are amazing crops. Actually, uh, you can look in the ancient world and they're not inconceivable. They're good, but they're not inconceivable crops. This is just what it should look like. This is just what it should look like. 
So all we do, what is Jesus getting at? He's talking about disciples here. Disciples, true followers, true Christians, they repent, they trust, they follow, they bear fruit. Everything we do in terms of action and speech as disciples and followers in Jesus is to love Christ and then to seek to have others love Christ like we love Christ. To proclaim. Everything we do is about proclamation. Where God puts us in the world is sovereign. We don't get to choose that, but he puts us there sovereignly because there are people around you to proclaim the gospel to. And not everyone's going to respond. That's not the promise. But that's what we're seeking. That's what we're seeking. If we were to pull the implications out of all of this, there's, there's two types of implications. One for the crowds, one audience, and another for disciples, the other audience. For the crowds, remember what Jesus said with the parable. He said, those with ears to hear, let them hear. What is he saying? He's saying, think about what I just told you. And what's he trying to do? He's leaving the door open for individuals to think about and make the correspondences that Jesus explains to the disciples and to shake them up in a kind of a, a sneaky way and say, are you, how are you responding to the message? Are you hard-hearted? Are you dismissing it quickly? Are you... Uh, responding with joy, but there's no depth to what you're thinking about? There's no counting the cost? Or do you find yourself, are you dismissing the message because you find yourself more attracted to the things of this time and place? See, for any of those people, they should be thinking about it, and they, if they realize what's going on, they're like, I need to, to use the language of Jeremiah, break up my fallow ground and have good soil, a repentant heart. I need to actually heed Jesus' message. I need to repent. I need to move from the crowds to the disciples. How are you hearing the gospel of the kingdom? Where is your heart? You quickly dismiss it? Eh, Yeah, the gospel, the kingdom, whatever. That's just nonsense. I mean, you're here for other reasons. I don't know. You quickly dismiss it. Well, friend, Satan's most at work in your life because he's snatching the seed away. You don't even allow the seed to germinate. Do you expect following Jesus to be easy and comfortable? Friend, you might be rocky soil. You might be joyful now, but you have, you're not willing to count the cost. And when things get tough, where will you be? Where's your heart? Do you find yourself more attracted to the things in this time and place? Yeah, yeah, Jesus is great. Uh, I like having Jesus. I like, I like Christianity, but boy, man, there's some, there's some great stuff in this world, and my focus and my attention is there, and that's what really does it for me. Friend, you might be weedy soil, and those things are going to choke the life out of the gospel. If you like having Jesus on the side, but you're focused on the things in this world, you just might be weedy soil. You may hear the gospel. You might even understand it mentally. You might understand it to an extent. You might even have a response of joy to the gospel. Doesn't mean you're a Christian. A Christian repents, trusts, follows, and bears fruit because of who Jesus is. Jesus is the treasure of the kingdom. Jesus is the one we love because of what he has done for our souls. 
and he is worth following at any cost if you see who Jesus is. You will be willing to do anything, not because of who you are, but because Jesus is so valuable. God works in your heart to see that and to understand that and to follow him at any cost. It's ultimately God's work that allows you to be good soil. You can't change your soil in a sense, right? God has to do that. God has to grant that to you. And yet you plead and say, God, change my heart so that I might see Jesus as he is truly is. He's supremely valuable, supremely satisfying, and I want to die rather than renounce following him. Are you bearing fruit? Now notice the question is not how much. You can have different levels of fruitfulness as a disciple. The question is, are you bearing? Are you bearing fruit? You might have a greater or lesser impact in God's kingdom. That's not the point. Are you bearing fruit? Now, don't take that and say, oh, okay, that means I need to do all these things, tick, 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 all these things, all these great things, and God's going to be satisfied with me. No. See, you see who Jesus is first. That's where you start, and he produces fruit in you. You don't try to do a bunch of stuff and say, tick, 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 staple I'm going to go to the grocery store and get some nice-looking apples, and I'm going to staple them on my dead tree, right? That's, that's not how God operates. You need to be good soil that only He can produce and change your life and so that you delight in doing those things. You don't be a fruit stapler, but you come to Christ. You know who Christ is as Savior. You know who Christ is as King. You follow Him as King. And that's going to change your desires and what you do and what your life is oriented around. Your life will be oriented around Jesus and about producing other followers of Jesus Christ. That's the message to the crowds. That's the implications to the crowds. What about for the disciples? Well, like we said, we struggle with where the disciples would struggle. Why do so few people not see the goodness of of the kingdom, the goodness of Christ, why do so few people not see? And it's discouraging. It's even more discouraging when you see someone who made a profession of faith, who says, like Jesus says in Matthew 7, Lord, Lord, he says, I didn't know you. And when that comes visible, that's very discouraging. And so what are we supposed to do? What is, the, what is this mystery? What is the secret of the kingdom that is for the disciples? Keep proclaiming the message of the kingdom faithfully. Don't be disheartened when professing Christians show that they are not. It's sad. No one's denying it's sad. Don't be disheartened by a lack of response to the gospel. Jesus told us it would be like this. Instead, give thanks that there is any that there's any good soil, that there's any harvest. Give thanks that there is a remnant, as Isaiah would frame it, that people do respond and follow, including you. You were in Christ. You didn't cause that. That was God's grace to you. And he caused you to respond and follow, and it's a miraculous thing. And so you've got to remember the miracle. You, we need to be faithful in proclaiming, but I had one of my seminary professors speaking on this passage say it this way, God doesn't judge on the, measure, the, the, the amount, the production. He judges on faithfulness. Are we being faithful 
And are we remembering that this is the way things are? This is the way things are in the kingdom, in God's world right now. Hear and understand why so few hear and understand the message of the kingdom. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Thank you that we have a word. Thank you that we have a gospel that you have delivered to us and that has been passed down from generation to generation. Help us to be faithful proclaimers to our own hearts and to the world of the gospel. Help us to keep repenting, to keep trusting you, to keep following you, and to, in time, in trusting on you, bear fruit. Lord, we want to be a fruitful people. We want to be faithful to the mission you have given us. And we know that even when we're faithful, that doesn't guarantee results because those are in your hand, but you call us to be faithful. Lord, we want to be fruitful, even in our community here, to proclaim to those who very much are into the things of this world and this age. And we pray that you would open their eyes to see the glories of the kingdom, to know you, Lord Jesus, to know you as the great, magnificent, awesome, worthy king. Lord, give us in our spheres that you've placed this boldness and faithfulness in proclaiming the gospel Lord, help us to, yes, grieve when the gospel is not responded to, but not be disheartened. Lord, continue to give us courage when we struggle. And Lord, we ask that you would continue to work and bring about a harvest for the sake of your name and your glory. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.